Well, how is your Easter going? Yeah, we're right in the middle of Easter still. Easter didn't end when we put the ham in the refrigerator. You know, we are in the Easter season giving special attention to the resurrection of Jesus the King as we do all year, but during the Easter season, we're more aware. You've been in this situation before too. You've been at a concert and the last song comes and it's the finale and the music is up and the lights are up and then it ends and the stage goes dark and the house lights come on and everyone starts to kind of gather their stuff thanking the concert's over. Then it happens. Boom. House lights off. Stage lights on. And what is it? What is it? It's the encore. And you kind of know it's coming, right? You kind of expect it to come, but you don't know for sure. And even though that's become customary in concerts now to have this encore at the end, you, you, um, you're still kind of excited about it because it just creates something. Well, this passage we're going to look at today, I'm going to invite you to turn to John chapter 21. It's one of what I'm calling an encore of Jesus after the resurrection. Ten times Jesus appeared to the disciples. That's recorded. Ten recorded instances that Jesus appeared to the disciples after uh, his resurrection and before he ascended into heaven. So he wasn't there all the time. He would come and go. And this was part of his process of building faith and preparing his followers for the Holy Spirit and for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to look at this passage, and the title of my message is When Jesus Reveals. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to enjoy reading this passage. It's one of those passages that even without commentary or the, the, the pastor expanding it, you're just going to be blessed to read it. It's in John 21, and I think often when we're reading the book of John, we're getting to the end, and we know Jesus is resurrected, and it's the last chapter, and so... Uh, we may have a tendency to read kind of fast because we're excited about the next book and not let the weight and gravity of this passage rest on us. And I hope it does today because it is so good. You're going to enjoy it. John chapter 21, starting with verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Now, I'm going to give some commentary as we read the scripture. I, I love that phrase, and I chose to underline this. It's not in the Bible. He revealed himself in this way. This definitely communicates that Jesus often reveals himself in unique ways to unique people. Now, his character never changes, nor can it. He's unchangeable, consistent. But contextually, that different cultures, different generations... Even different denominational expressions experience Jesus different ways. Jesus reveals himself uniquely, and we have different pathways. Even our own personality sometimes connects with Jesus in unique ways. Now, why is this important to hear? It's important to hear because it's the same Jesus, the same Lord, the same everything. But this, this understanding keeps us from belittling other Christian expressions. You're like, I oh, mean, that, that group, they're weird. That group, they're, they're too out there. That group, they're too boring. 
and our group is the best. No, it lets us embrace humility where we say, this is the way, this is the pathway Jesus is revealing to us. This is the way Jesus is revealing to me. And, and this, this is helpful. And, and this unchanging Jesus whose character is established before the world even existed will not change, but he reveals himself uniquely to unique groups. Y'all like that point? Because I did. All right. <laughs> Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. You'll see from other scriptures that commercial fishing happened at night. And so if you think that you're on the third shift and you're smitten by God because of that, the disciples were on the third shift too. All right, so people really close to Jesus had to work all night also. Amen. Because everyone who was on the third shift is asleep right now. Maybe they'll hear that on the podcast. Verse 4, when daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore. However, the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Verse 5, men, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? Now, this is an interesting little phrase. Um, In the ESV, the New American Standard, they use the term children. The NIV uses the term friends. And so we have men, friends, children. Well, so I started to look at what was really happening there because sometimes our English language is limited. And what Jesus was saying here was a kind of personal, affectionate colloquialism. He was saying, in essence, my boys, my boys. And and we, we don't really have a way to grasp this. This was... The only time he used this phrase is with these very close disciples. So I don't know what Eugene Peterson translated the message as. It probably says, yo, homies, okay? <laughs> I don't know. But the point is, this was a very relational, relational, close type of request. Men, Jesus called, you don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat. And he told them, and you'll find some. So they did. And they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. Therefore, the disciple, the one Jesus loved, this is John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer garment around him, for he was stripped. By the way, this lets us know that men like to work with their shirts off, right? And that's what he was doing, so... He plunged into the sea. This is so beautiful. The one who denied Jesus, when he realized it was Jesus, instead of waiting for the boat to get to the shore, he said, no way, I'm going to jump in and swim to Jesus. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? But since they were not far from land, about 100 feet, 100 yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there. Incidentally, when Jesus cooks, he doesn't use gas grill. He does a real thing, right? Charcoal. And with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter got up and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. 
Even though they were so many, the net was not torn. Now, this is one of my favorite lines in scripture that is underexposed. Jesus said, come and have breakfast. Now, do you have, is it any surprise that I like that line? (laughs) Come and have breakfast. But we're going to see that this is such an amazing statement from God. The God of all the universe inviting these flawed men to breakfast. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them, and none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. You know, when something comes to an end, we tend to go back to what we know. And that's not always a bad thing. Now, it can be a bad thing if it's a destructive habit. So those of you who have struggled with substance abuse or you struggled with habits that you know are destructive, please know that there's certain things you can't do that others can do. There's certain places you can't go that others can go because we do have a natural tendency to return to what we know. Now, that's not always a bad thing either because sometimes we can have a period of time where we have more intensity in our career and we find ourselves landing back at a previous place. The years that we're raising toddlers and elementary kids, we abandon some things in our life because there's simply not time and usually not money either. And then we go back to some of those things that are good and beneficial. When George Washington, when his presidency ended, he, he returned to Mount Vernon to be a farmer. When Thomas Jefferson, when his presidency ended, he returned to Monticello to be a farmer. When George Strait's music career ended, he returned to Texas to be a rancher. I know that those three names are often said together in the same sentence, right? And we go back to what we know. And I read this into the scripture in Peter. We read this earlier, but look, look again at verse 3. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. Why is this significant? Because when Jesus found Peter, he was fishing. This was his trade. This is what he knew. We're coming with you, they told them. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. In a moment, we're going to look at Luke chapter 5 and see that how these scriptures parallel. But you'll see that Jesus found Peter and many of the disciples, not all of them, but many of them as fishermen. And what happened when the uncertainty of Jesus' death and the uncertainty of his resurrection, because he was coming and going, revealing himself at different times and phases, what is it that's going on here? Uh, Peter is saying, I... I don't know what's going on. I don't know the future. I'm just going to go back to what I know. I think this speaks to our God-given talents, our God-given giftings, our God-given opportunities that we have. Those things that you enjoy, those things that you're good at, those things that 
God has used, whether it's to build a career or to build a life or to build a reputation, are things that he is very aware of. And isn't it interesting that Jesus, when he calls us, he calls us in a certain state and he doesn't forget that state. He redeems that state and he sanctifies that fact. Here's my first observation. Jesus meets us where we are. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Jesus meets us where we are. Now, before we wrongly begin to think this is some kind of self-centered sermon where we're so awesome and powerful and we're, 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 we're so great that God comes to us because the world revolves around us. That's not the tone I'm trying to create here. I'm trying to point out a God who engages, a God who seeks, a God who goes after us, not because we're good and so impressive, but because he chooses to. This, my friends, is grace. This, my friends, is God's favor. This is that amazing grace that causes us to continue to praise him and can never get used to the salvation that we have. God seeks after us. And when Peter returned to fishing, and influence those around him to do the same. Jesus went to them. You see, we don't have to go to a special place. Unlike Islam, we don't have to make a pilgrimage to Mecca to be significant and to follow one of the pillars of that religion. We don't have to go to a special building. We don't have to go to a special temple because we have a God who by grace has chosen to come to us. And he comes to us right here in Sumner County, in Hendersonville, in Gallatin, in Goodlettsville. And he comes to our lives and, and he seeks after us and he goes to the place where we are and meets us so that we can know, know who he is and know his love and experience who he is. The God who seeks us, it's hard to believe us hard to conceptualize, but as you do, it will humble you and it will make you worship him. I'm not trying to earn God's favor. I'm responding to God's favor. I've received God's favor by grace and that reception of his favor causes me to live a life that pleases him. The God who seeks us, it's beautiful to see. It's beautiful to experience. You know, one of the problems we have in culture, I know every week I bring up some problem we have in culture, but I also bring up a solution every week too, right? And his name is Jesus. He's the solution. One of the problems we have is a male problem in culture. Young men who are not maturing. Sociologists, secular sociologists have seen this as a phenomena that has emerged. And now as far back as 2008, uh, a significant writing came out by Michael Kimmel, in a phrase he termed called Guyland. What is Guyland? It seeks to answer this question. Why do so many guys seem stuck between adolescence and adulthood? Why do so many of them fail to launch? What is going on with Americans, with American young men? Again, all the single ladies say, amen, preach it, brother. So what does this term guyland that Kimmel coined mean? Listen, it's both a stage of life, an undefined time span between adolescence and adulthood that can often stretch 
more than a decade. And this is what it is. It's where guys gather to be guys with each other, unhassled by the demands of parents, girlfriends, jobs, kids, and other nuisances of adult life. In this topsy-turvy, Peter Pan mindset, young men shirk the responsibilities of adulthood and remain fixated on the trappings of boyhood. Now, I can tell by your reaction that a lot of you agree with that. We do have a problem. And without sidetracking this sermon, let me, let me tell you what I think it is in simplistic terms. There's... there's any, any societal problem has many, many layers. But on a basic level, I think a lot of young men are just scared of maturity because they wrongly believe that maturity will somehow change them into someone they don't want to be. And part of this comes from pride, this pride of like, I like myself so much that I don't want to mature and be like Uncle Ron. You know, I don't want to mature and, and be like that dude across the street who is mowing his lawn in dress socks. Which, if you do that, there's nothing wrong with that. I've been known to do that myself too, you know. That did not come from the Lord or the notes. It just kind of came out. And so the problem is that, that this, this fear of maturity, this fear of maturity is misplaced. And here's the reason why. Because when I was thinking about this, reflecting, uh, working with some friends on this, praying through this, I believe the Lord gave me a word concerning the situation. That maturity makes you a better version of yourself. So we don't have to mature, we don't have to fear maturity as if maturity is somehow going to change us and we're going to be nerdy or maturity is going to change us and we're going to have less freedom. No, if God has instinctively created you as a man or a woman in this case too and, and he's calling you to maturity, your life will be better as you mature. And this is the case with the work of Jesus within us. Because taking this to a much more important step, I do say this, is that Jesus makes you a better version of yourself. Jesus doesn't change you in an unbecoming, undesirable way. He makes you a better version of who you are. And why is this? Because he made you in the first place. I mean, he saw that DNA coming together and said, this is going to be good for the world. This is going to be good for the kingdom. This, this personality is needed in 2016 in the teens. Is that what we're going to call this decade now? Do we know yet? In the, the tens, we need this person to be 28 or 52 or 13 or 79 in the year 2016. God has chosen for that for a particular reason because you are a gift to the world. And the development of your life and the development of Christ within you doesn't change you in a negative way. It transforms you into the man or woman he's called you to be all along. And so I say this, my second point, Jesus blesses who we are. 
Jesus blesses who we are. I'm thankful for a God who doesn't wait until I have it all together to accept me. He accepts me first. And the comfort and the, the uh, anointing of that acceptance changes me after I receive it. He accepts me for who I am. And then just being around him changes me. You cannot be in connection with the presence of God and the power of his word and the anointing of his community and not naturally be changed by the goodness of him. It's like you're not going to get close to the fire without feeling the heat. And you don't get close to God without a transformational quality. And it's going to be your same tone of voice and your same appearance to some degree. And it's your same essence of who you are, your same sense of humor. But it's going to be better and better and better because Jesus owns it now. That is the blessing we have. Now, I want you to think about John 21. We've read that scripture. And now let's look at Luke 5 because I want to now go back in time. And the reason this story in John 21 was so powerful for those who were experiencing it is because it was so closely connected to a scripture in Luke chapter 5. And Jesus was reminding them in John 21 what he had done in Luke 5, though, and, and, and we, we say those words because that's how we understand the stories, but you, you understand where I'm going with this. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. Another long passage, but you're going to enjoy this so much. As a crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by this lake, which is the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from the land. And then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, who is Peter, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. Does this sound familiar? This is sounding a lot like John 21. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they did this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets began to tear. And so they signaled to their partners and the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Now this is God's overwhelming prosperity and blessing here. But I, I find this to be a beautiful picture. A lot of times we can't handle prosperity. And I want you to think about one of the reasons that God, you may not have seen God's prosperity is because maybe you can't handle it yet because you're going to sin with it. Look what, look what Simon did. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at his knees and said, go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Lord. Isn't that interesting that uh, the blessing of the Lord made Simon aware of the greatness of God and the sinfulness of him. Sometimes the blessing of the Lord, we're like, I'm the man. I'm, the man. I'm growing this business. I'm growing this church. I've worked hard in my education. I landed that deal. I, that investment was awesome. Instead of God, I can't believe you're blessing me. Because I know me, God. I know the mistakes I've made. I, I know the weaknesses. I, and you're blessing me? That's the spirit of humility God wants us to have when he blesses us. 
For he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish they took. And so were James and John, Zebedee's son, who were Simon's partners. Again, they were in the same story in chapter 21. Jesus, don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. Then they brought the boats to the land, left everything, and followed him. Isn't it interesting? This is the call of Peter. And God found a fisherman and said, you're going to be now a fisherman. I'm going to take your talent, your vocation, your skills. I'm going to sanctify it and use it for my purposes. Then when Peter doubted it and began to go back to the way it used to be, Jesus went right back by grace to the same place to remind him of his original call. Isn't that good? That's God's word to us. Jesus brings us back to that original place so we can see his call. Do you know there are, I believe, seasons of unusual blessing in our lives to help us see the hand of God? And those seasons are seasons because God doesn't do them forever for particular reasons. Let me tell you about one of those times in my life. When I was 19 years old, I got my first job in the ministry. It was in Paola, Kansas, at Paola Assembly God Church, and I made $25 a week. It didn't quite cover my gas money from Olathe, where I was going to school, to Paola and back. But I was thrilled, and for some reason, they started labeling me Pastor Aaron at that grand old age of 19. So I did children's ministry, loved working with those families, and then every third Sunday night, I got to preach to the adults. And I loved doing that. Loved learning how to preach on those guys. I'd started preaching earlier in life, but I got to refine that skill. I'd refine that skill in one of those Sunday nights to you know, a crowd of maybe 50 to 70 adults, uh, may, maybe that many. And I'm preaching away. And back then, I was a fiery preacher even more. I was like a machine gun. Da, 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 da. I mean, I do that some, occasionally here, but this is like start the sermon, end the sermon. No breath in between. You know, it's just boom, 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 machine gun going. And I'm preaching on a passage I've shared with you during offering time in previous weeks, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, about sowing and reaping. And I'm just, I'm preaching in a way, I had no business to at 19. You got to give to God. You got to trust him. You got to sow seed into the kingdom. He's going to bring it back to you. You know, just going and going and going. So we go to ministry time and it's, it's going well and, and the Lord's moving. I see one of the board members go to the senior pastor and, and he whispers, the senior pastor is shaking his head. Yeah, yeah. So the board member comes up and he, as the service is ending, he grabs a microphone and he says, I just want to thank Aaron for that sermon. I feel like God has led me to do something. We're going to put a bucket, pastors approved this, put a bucket at the back of service. And as you're leaving, if you want to invest into his ministry, uh, could you just put, put a financial gift in it? I'm like, yes, this man heard from the Lord. Yes, he did. <laughs> he is a man of God. And so that happened. And later on that night when the treasurer and the pastor came to me, the pastor's eyes were this big. And he's like, I mean, I could not believe this. He says, Aaron, there's over $2,000 we're going to give to you. And that number was bigger than life to me. And on that drive home that night, I just felt God's favor on my preaching, God's favor on my life. You know, don't feel sorry for me. It wasn't a big sacrifice, but it was a small sacrifice to go to the Sunday night services because back at campus, that was a night 
when my friends had a certain tradition I couldn't participate in. Later on that night, we had to scurry back to the campus because our team had a team meeting every Sunday night at 9 o'clock. It was just inconvenient. It wasn't always fun to drive to Paola. But man, that night, I was like, man, God, I'm so glad I honored you. Now you've honored me, and, and this is going to be more money than I've ever had, and I'm provided for, and this is just great. And it was like, it was like the net was breaking, right? It was like the fish in the net was breaking. So as my preaching ministry developed, you know, I tried to be honest with the Lord about this, but, you know, occasionally I was like, Lord, do you want me to preach about that 2 Corinthians 9 again? Do you, uh, you want me to? And, and, you know, one of those times, you know, I, and I, 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 when he led me to do that, he led me to preach that scripture, you know, my flesh, you can't help in the back of your mind think, man, could this work again, right? Could this work again? And it never worked again quite like that, which is fine. I mean, God's blessed me in all kinds of ways. But God wanted that catch to happen that one time. I mean, it's kind of like maybe Tim Tebow. I don't know all of you like Tebow, but, you know, he, he did all this prayer thing, and, and, he, and he, won, he won the playoff games with the Broncos when he shouldn't beat the Steelers, and they never play football again, okay? And there's no doubt God's favor was on him that time. Or, or Kurt Warner, you know, he's, shop, he, he's working at the grocery store, and Nine months later, he wins a Super Bowl for the Rams. But then he got sacked a lot after that. He didn't win the Super Bowl every year. The point is, I believe seasons of blessings come to our life to let us know God's saying, my favor's on you, my blessing's on you, and because I love you, I'm not going to do that every time. Now, Now go live a regular life. But then he brings it back around to us to remind us of that. And and it's a beautiful part of his call. So I, I want you to reflect on, on that type of work in your life and what God has done. You know, a beautiful thing that I love to do, this won't surprise you, is I love to go out to lunch with people and dinner with people. That's a, that's a real um, health hazard when you're in the ministry. So uh, these days, uh, I, try to, I try to schedule more coffees for caloric intake and to keep those limited. But in my younger years, someone told me this philosophy when it came to dating girls. You know, they said that, you know, if you're not quite sure about the girl yet, don't take her to a big dinner, okay? Take her to a coffee first, all right? Amen. Because if you take her to a coffee first, it's not that big of an investment of time. Come on. You know what? Even a better way is take her to ice cream because then, you know, the ice cream melts. So that's even less of commitment. Now, just for the record, my wife sitting over here, I took her to the most expensive dinner the first time I took her out. She was not an ice cream or a coffee girl. She was a dinner girl. So habits have changed now. And, and, and um, if, I, if I invite you to coffee, it's, it's truly because I'm trying to stay healthier. But I, I do love going out to lunch with people. And in every single culture, no matter what the language is, no matter what the customs is, almost every culture that I know of, sharing a meal is the international sign of friendship. And I've shared meals with people that I didn't, have a, I didn't know their language, but as we're sitting at the table and in a traditional setting, taking the same food from the same bowls, the same cut of meat from the same serving tray, there's the idea of camaraderie, of friendship. There's the idea of uh, fellowship. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to share a meal together. And as the years go on, I hope I can share a meal with many of you in 
forward 101. We'll do that here in just a few minutes. But on a personal level, this is why I love verse 12, John 21, verse 12, when Jesus said this, come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. What a sign of friendship. Here's my last point. Jesus befriends who we are. Are you kidding me? The God of all creation's cooking breakfast? The God of all creation is preparing this meal for these fishermen, meeting them where they are, transforming who they are because he created them in the first place, and then befriending them and asking them to come to him. I'm going to ask our ushers to begin to position themselves for our corporate communion today. There's something about the way Jesus shared the meal that they knew it was him. Probably something about the way he broke the bread reminded them of the, the night of Passover when he instituted communion and he said, when you eat the bread, think of me. And when you drink the cup, think of me. I'm going to break the bread. And here in a moment, we as his believers are going to go through the symbolic act of the Lord's Supper. And all here are welcome to eat the bread and to drink the cup. And this is how we're gonna do it today. We're gonna do it as his friends. There's different parts of God's nature that we emphasize for different reasons, but I'm amazed at this. He is our friend. In John chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus says this, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. It's such a beautiful thing. We're invited to the table. He's prepared a meal for us. He's prepared the table for us.